When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Slate Audiobook Club's discussion of Behind the Beautiful Forevers, the National Book Award-winning Chronicle of Life in a Mumbai Slum by Catherine Boot. I'm Dan Coyce, editor of the Slate Book Review, and I'm here in Slate's DC Recording Studio with Hannah Rosen, Slate's Double X editor. Hi. Hi, Dan. And up in New Haven, we're joined by Slate Senior Editor Emily Bazelon. Hi, Emily. Hi, Dan. Hi, Hannah. Hi. So uh, we'll be discussing the fates of the many characters in Behind the Beautiful Forevers in some detail, and few of those fates are happy ones. So if spoilers matter to you, you might want to listen to us after you read the book, which I certainly recommend you do. In Behind the Beautiful Forevers, through four years of reporting in Anawadi, a slum on the edge of Mumbai's airport, Catherine Boo tells the stories of about a dozen residents of the Undercity, garbage pickers, fixers, mothers, children. All of them are striving to better themselves even as the unbelievable pressures of their lives and the rampant corruption of the new India make that basically an impossible task. And so I think maybe the first question I'd want to ask both of you about this book, which is extremely well reported and extremely well written and really super depressing, is – is it too depressing? Is this book like too much to take? You know, I think of great narrative nonfiction as having some kind of drama or tension to it. But for me, one of the interesting things about this book was that it was almost completely drained of tension because it was clear from almost the beginning that there was potentially no way out for any of these. I did not experience the book like that at all. I think one of the Me neither. beauties oh, of the way that Kate writes – I'm sorry I call her Kate. She and I used to work together at the Washington Post and so we were friends. So there, that's out there. One of the beauties of the way Kate writes is that she lets you forget for long periods of time because we're often thinking of us and them, right? You certainly think of slum dwellers as very different from you and, you know, largely invisible. And so Kate, you know, likes to take invisible characters. I remember at the Washington Post, she wrote about one of the street prostitutes who was downstairs on 15th Street right outside the Post. It's one of her specialties. And you go for long periods of time just being drawn into their completely mundane and ordinary family drama such that she collapses the difference between us and them. And then it comes as a surprise when some horrible thing happens like someone swallows rat poison because you've forgotten for a long time because she's talking about you know them trying on clothes or complaining about college or wondering who they're going to marry. And so you just get sort of sucked into that drama and then it hits you in the face suddenly that the lives are very different from our lives. Emily, why did you think it was different? Well, I just can't believe, Dan, that you said that you felt like there wasn't narrative tension in this book. Perhaps I'm setting you up as a straw man, but let me continue. Because the opening of this book had my heart racing. I mean, it's one of the most exciting nonfiction narratives I've ever read in my life. It's this very closely observed scene of the main character, Abdul, suspected of committing this terrible crime, burning a woman to death, and hiding in this makeshift 
shelter he's created out of the recycled garbage that he and his family subsist on. It's an incredible scene. And I think most of the narrative tension keeps going through the book, even though, yes, these are very grim circumstances. Emily's clearly never read Black Hawk Down. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't say it was the most or the only (laughs) exciting book, although you're right, I haven't read Black Hawk Down. I agree that that's a great structural way to create tension. As a writer, right, you leave a character in dire straits and you start in medias res in your prologue and then you rewind back. She even uses the actual image of rewinding back before our eyes back to eight months before the burning happened. But at the same time, while I was certainly curious to know what was going to happen to Abdul and his family and I wanted to know how the court case and the situation was going to resolve itself, there was no sense that for any of them, the greater drama in their lives, the struggle that all of them seem to be undertaking on a minute-by-minute basis to just try to get even a little bit ahead, that none of them were ever going to have any success in that. Because so much of what is amazing about this book, I think, is how clearly it sets up the enormous, ridiculous, insane obstacles that all of them face from corruption and the government and the police to just their own poverty to the fact that everything is so set up against them that all the poor people in Anawadi are constantly like climbing on top of each other just trying to even get a leg up and eventually getting climbed on themselves. Like I just – this is not necessarily a criticism but it is to say that I found that the overarching narrative tension of most nonfiction journalism, which is will these people get what they want in the end, is almost completely absent because I never really for once thought any of these people would get what they really want. I think the difficulty for someone like Kate of writing a book like this is that she's very self-conscious. There's a long author's note at the back which talks a lot about her methods and how she reported this and her relationships with the people in the book. The narrative tension is that she wants to be fairly authentic to their lives and the way they live it. So she, in fact, fact, has to resist creating an extreme, dramatic arch intention where there isn't one. And I think that's a difficult thing to set out to do if you're writing a book. So if you take Adrienne Nicole LeBlanc's book, Random Family, uh, Emily, if you remember that book, you know, the same thing happens, Dan, that you're talking about. It's crushing because every time anyone gets a toe out of the neighborhood or out into some hopeful situation, they get completely crushed. And it happens over and over again in that book. And you kind of know it's going to happen. So I think in that case where she spent, you know, not four years, but 10 or 12 years closely observing the lives of these poor people, she solved that problem for herself by creating little dramas, you know, like little dramas around boyfriends or children or illnesses and things like that, which is, I think, is your only choice because life as it's lived is a life of little dramas. Now, Kate takes another way out, which is that she's a very good writer. So what pulls you through this book, I think, are are largely character sketches. So Mm -hmm. it's not so much the drama as, you know, a sort of nice portrait of a moment between a mother or, you know, describing the motivations of, of fairly ordinary motivations of people. But because she has such a light touch and a good voice, it kind of carries you through more than any like true dramatic arch. Yes, there are these lovely grace notes. I agree with you. But I also think, Dan, that you're leaving out Asha and her daughter Manju, who are this kind of counterpart set of characters in the book. Asha is this total striver, essentially someone who's trying to become a power broker and a slum landlord in this slum. And Kate is very clear-eyed about her flaws. I'm going to call her Kate because I know her a little bit too. Though less I'm just going to call her Kate too because I don't want to get left out. <laughs> yeah, we'll just hey, Kate, if you're it. listening, how are you? 
<laughs> so you have Asha in her kind of ugliness, but also in her success moving through this slum and trying to affiliate with a local political party. And then you have her succeeding to send her daughter Manju out for a college education, which, while it doesn't lead to some dramatic change, because you're right, Hannah, Kate is incredibly faithful to the facts that she has, and she doesn't want to create kind of false sense of movement, it still has this sense of change in this one girl's life. I mean, Asha is an amazing character, and I do want to talk about her a lot. But bear in mind that the last we see of her and her daughter, her daughter has gotten wrapped up in one of her legal schemes and is the quote-unquote bookkeeper for this fake company she invented to defraud charities out of money. And Asha is still going off to have sex with powerful men because that's the way she has to get ahead. It's like, a it's vision not like of they, the middle class, Dan. Right? It's not like, but I'm just saying, it's not like it's a tale of triumph. No, it's not a tale of triumph, but it's about change. It's a different kind of circumstance than the people in this book who are utterly destitute, of whom there are many. Let's talk about Asha because I think that she is, is an amazing character, and I do think it's that you're right that it's the characters who pull us through this book, Hana. As you say, she's setting herself to be like the slum lord of Anawadi, the Anawadi slums, and her whole life is this amazing sort of set of of frauds and scams that she is playing on her ostensible friends and neighbors and on the people who pay her bills, right? She's ostensibly a teacher, but she doesn't actually really teach. She spends most of her time on the phone, like, working out deals. And she also runs a school thanks to a charity, except for that she doesn't actually run the school. She makes her daughter do it, except for that when her daughter does it, she gets angry at her because she's not keeping house. And she distributes loans for a charity, except for that she actually is taking bribes and taking a cut of the loans. And when people in the neighborhood get arrested, she can help them out, but only for a fee. And if they don't pay the fee, then fuck them. And she sleeps around on her husband and makes him cry because she's sleeping around on him and convinces him just to stop crying but never says she's going to change her behavior. Right. But also that sleeping around is obviously somewhat coerced and that she doesn't always want to be doing it. And while she takes some pleasure in it, it also is obviously an obligation as in that unbelievably horrible scene when she goes out on her 40th birthday to meet a guy in a police van like outside a hotel. Can we just note the end of men? aspect of this book to quote <laughs> Hannah because the women in this book tend to be kick-ass and their husbands tends to be like either drunk or just like totally pathetic. Well, there is one point where I think it's Murchie. Who, which of the sons says, I want to marry someone like you so that she'll get to do all the work and I'll do nothing? It's like, Murchie, actually, yes. yes. It's Abdul's little brother, Murchie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I want to say something about Asha because I think this is really important. One of the things that I think is most brave about the way that Kate goes about this book is her exposure of the questionable motives and lack of morality. I mean, the the most moving chapter to me by far is the late chapter called Parrots Caught and Sold about when one of the injured scavengers is dying along the side of the road and she and she portrays people going about their business throughout the day. And it's like, well, I really should help him, but I've got to go take care of this court case. And I really should do this. It's her bravest point that these kinds of circumstances, that poverty and desperation basically erodes your ability to be a moral person, which Asha embodies in many ways. And I think that's a really out there point to be making because the way that most people write about how the other half lives is to portray them with a certain kind of nobility, whereas what Kate aims for is a certain kind of normalcy, humor, and 
in some ways erosion of humanity. And at the end of the book, in her author's note, she says explicitly, I wanted to show how, you know, these circumstances make it actually very difficult to make moral decisions. Nonetheless, it is a risky thing she's doing, choosing a character like Asha, who's very questionable, then choosing to show us how how immoral some people behave. There's no romanticizing in this book, right? Or at least very, very little. And that separates it from a lot of books about poor people that either in some way hold them up as shining examples or just skirt around the erosion of morality. Well, what there is is like affection. You know, there's affection. There's there's fine writing. There's a lot of humanity, but not a lot of romanticizing. Right. So there's a section I want to read that really speaks to what Hannah is talking about, which was one of the most amazing takeaways from this book for me and which I agree is a pretty surprising and brave thing in writing about the world's huge number of great poor people. It's on page 237 and she's talking about how the people of Anawati never like get together to fight the injustices that face them. And she writes, instead, powerless individuals blamed other powerless individuals for what they lacked. Sometimes they tried to destroy one another. Sometimes, like Fatima, they destroyed themselves in the process. Fatima is the woman who set herself on fire and blamed her next-door neighbors for it. When they were fortunate, like Asha, they improved their lots by beggaring the life chances of other poor people. What was unfolding in Mumbai was unfolding elsewhere, too. In the age of global market capitalism, hopes and grievances were narrowly conceived, which blunted a sense of common predicament. Poor people didn't unite. They competed ferociously amongst themselves for gains as slender as they were provisional. And this undercity strife created only the faintest ripple in the fabric of the society at large. The gates of the rich, occasionally rattled, remained unbreached. The politicians held forth on the middle class. The poor took down one another, and the world's great unequal cities soldiered on in relative peace. It's one of the few moments where she really steps out of the story to give a sort of philosophy of poverty or, you know, give sort of real voice and analysis to what she's been doing because she doesn't do it that often. But it's a really moving observation, I think, this sense that there's this great sea underneath the surface of what we see in every city. And that sea is roiling itself and the creatures in that sea are fighting each other constantly. But there's almost no chance that any of those creatures in that sea will ever make it out. Right. Or will ever affect anyone really besides themselves, that everyone else in that city, the middle and upper class, can live completely as if none of that even exists. You know, those scenes where when everyone in Anawati starts their cooking fires and the only effect it has on the city is that the people in the hotels nearby sometimes complain about how smoky it is and how sometimes ash gets in the pool. Well, one of one of the great things that – Kate does this a lot in her work is she's very wry about the way that the outside world – you know, shows up little sort of sparks of light in this other world, like sort of lights in the, you know, sort of in the undersea or however we want to put it. So the title is one such example behind the Beautiful Forevers when you realize what she's talking about is mm-hmm. that there's a wall that says Beautiful Forevers, Beautiful Forevers, Beautiful Forevers, and they live behind it. So it's quite literal. And then when uh, the daughter of Asha, Manju, studies Mrs. Dalloway or Freud, you know, and has this kind of <laughs> distorted understanding of what Freud might mean in her life or she has no ability to understand Mrs. Dalloway. And, you know, that's another example of it, just the imperfect ways that the world filters through. And then any interaction, basically, that one of the slum dwellers has with somebody from the outside world is incompletely understood, like, you know, having sex with the policeman in the van. Their encounters with law enforcement generally are kind of inhumane. And 
the master, Abdul, when he's going through his legal case, and he invents, there's almost this invented mythical character called the master who's going to teach him something and who has bestowed upon him some sense of hopefulness and inspiration. And, you know, it's all completely fake. It's like these people are not people to each other. They're mythical creatures. Mm -hmm. I'd love to talk about the case that Abdul finds himself wrapped up in. And I was really intrigued by the way his his and his family's journey through the justice system happened and how many opportunities there were throughout for us reading this from our perspective. Like there are so many points at which it seems obvious, well, in any like non-dysfunctional criminal justice system, this case would instantly be thrown out. But in fact, it takes years and years and years and years for there to be any resolution. And in fact, by the time the book ends, years after this event happened, Abdul himself, he still hasn't been tried in his juvenile case. And so a lot of these scenes sort of read to me like parodies almost of like a typical nonfiction trial narrative, right? Because the trial itself is totally absurd. Right. Like the judge can't really understand what people are saying. So she like gives back these totally circumscribed versions of what the witnesses say to be entered into the record because it's just easier and faster. Mm -hmm. And the family of the accused can't even hear anything that's going on because they have to sit in the back by an open window and trucks are going past. And it was just like the whole thing was such like a horrible comedy of errors. And then it conversely also made me think, well, is this actually what the criminal justice system looks like to poor people in America? Yes. There's a really good nonfiction book by Amy Bach that is about sitting in a courtroom in Georgia and just spending time, you know, imagining what it would be like to be a defendant in this courtroom. And mm. Amy can't hear anything that's going on. The lawyers are, you know, jabbering to the judge. It's incomprehensible. Nobody ever says clearly what any of the charges are. Often people are being kind of pushed into rapidly pleading guilty to things without being at all clear what's going on. And so, you know, the Indian version of this is an amped up developing country version. But the idea that court can be incomprehensible to the people whose lives are being impacted in it in this incredibly routine way is totally something that is an American phenomenon as well. There's a wonderful example at the Corker now, and I'm forgetting the name of the photographer, but I just saw it this weekend. And she goes around the world looking for places where people are treated like data points in some absurd legalistic way. And one of the places she goes to is India, in which she takes pictures and the photographs actually make people look like data points. They're sort of tiny portraits of people in these little white boxes, is one where relatives of Indians have reported them dead to the authorities, even though they're perfectly alive, in order to take their land. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you hear these absurd justice stories where they'll go to the court and say, I am here, so therefore I am alive, so therefore this is absurd. And nonetheless, they have to go through years of absurd legal wrangling in order to prove they're alive, and they generally can't manage it because people pay off the judges. And so, yes, it's another way in which there's an element of absurdity to this legal process, which we see in this book. And we should say also this court case, which is about the self-immolation of this woman in the beginning of the book that sets off all the action – She's having this ongoing fight with Abdul's family about the property that she rents from them. Essentially, they're fighting over living in incredibly close quarters with barely any resources. And so then when she dies and her death is blamed on that family and particularly on Abdul, it's essentially like a sort of revenge narrative in which people's deprivations are playing out with this very petty but scary entry into the justice system. 
it's amazing to me that like the levels of corruption in this justice system. I mean, one of the things that interests me, Emily, about your comparison of the Indian system with the American system is not that it's so great for Abdul and his family, but at least in the Indian system, people are clear to you that if you pay them money, maybe you'll get out of it. Right. In that section, I thought back to that line earlier in the book where Catherine Brew talks about how corruption is such a way of life that for many poor people, it's like literally the only opportunity they have. Right. Like if at least you could scrape together enough money to pay a judge, well, then maybe you might have some result. And the only good result that Zerusina, Abdul's mother, has at any point in the trial until the very end is when she pays off a school to falsify documents saying that Abdul is a juvenile so that he'll get tried in juvenile court and stay in juvenile prison instead of going to an adult prison. It's true. In fact, the definition of you know successfully taking steps towards the middle class seems to be navigating the system of corruption well. Like if right. you land towards the top of the corruption corruption system, then you should be proud of yourself. Right. You have to be really lucky and very cleverly corrupt at the same time. Can I ask a question about the role of sex in the novel, which I think is really interesting, that the only people who talk about or have sex are women and the middle-aged women? I mean, it's somewhat an act of degradation, but it seems to be also an act of um, self sort of empower not empowerment exactly, but self determination. Like it's something Fatima, definitely is. It's yeah. like something you decide to do, and it's something you do to flout conventions, and it's a sign that you're independent and in control in some way. I thought I thought I was very surprised by how sex it doesn't show up that much in the novel, but it shows up in really surprising ways. I thought that was really interesting too, and in that the young men there are so many young men in this book. None of whom give a shit about sex. Like they're all they're way too any, busy. As far as we could tell. Yeah, I mean they're all way too busy like working 14 to 16 hours a day and then barely going to sleep at night. And many of them are Muslim and are not yet married and are devout enough that they're not having sex anyway or at least don't have the opportunity to. And I found that really interesting too. And I was trying to figure out how much of that is due to the way things actually are or just happen to be in this particular community. Is there any sense at which Catherine Boo's job as a reporter in a very traditional community was easier with the women she was talking to or with the middle-aged women particularly than it was with the men? I don't know. I can't tell. Well, isn't it about the particular young men she's drawn to? Because they have nothing to offer whatsoever. And so they have no way to court any girl. But yeah, but that doesn't stop teenagers all over the world, teenage boys no, and girls from having true. sex with each other. I think it is an anyway. obstacle to teenagers all over the world. If you just have nothing and no reason to sell yourself to people, it gets tough. Yeah, and also, where would you have sex in the slums? I think it might also be the fact that there were only so many lines she could clearly cross. Like she writes at the end of the book that she didn't just want to go with the chatty characters, right? Like she right. didn't just want to go to the middle-aged women who talk to anybody. So Abdul, it sounds like she doesn't say this explicitly. It sounds like Abdul was not a big talker, you know, and it took her a long time to get him to reflect because there is a new journalism feel to some parts of this book, which she explains away at the end. And what I mean by that is that she writes about people thoughts in her own voice. Right. So she explains that by saying, you know, I had many, many conversations with them. And it was particularly difficult with someone like Abdul, who doesn't like to reflect and is mostly pretty busy. And so you just have to kind of run around with him as he's scavenging and, you know, in bits and pieces, try and gather what he was thinking at that time. But maybe that was as much as she could do to get him to talk about, you know, who he would like to sleep with was was a step too far. I mean, the only like really charismatic 
like funny character who seems even really that interested in his appearance is the one of the kids who gets killed later. Right. Kalu, who is very popular in the slums and who likes to tell stories and who has a really sweet hairdo. It seems in the end that the reason we learn about him is that later he gets killed. Right. You know, it's not as though he had that much to offer the story besides that. The things he was interested in were not the things that the other boys and that Catherine Boo was particularly interested in. Right. Let's talk a little bit about, if we can, about that new journalism voice that Hannah referenced and about the many, many hours of reporting that were clearly behind this book. As Hannah mentioned, Catherine Boo, Kate, has a long note at the end of the book about how she did this research. She says that she witnessed almost everything that's in the book. And when she didn't research it, she reconstructed it based on multiple interviews. Like she says, she interviewed 168 people about the night of Fatima's burning, which, oh, my God, that that doesn't make every journalist feel like they're not doing anything. Yeah, but that was the narrative structure. I mean, you had to do that because that was... No, Hannah, you never have to interview 168 people. people. That's a a choice. (laughs) Hannah, do you remember this? When this book came out last year, I was like either in the middle of or finishing my book. And I remember calling you like basically in tears being like, you know what? I just give up. I, I, and you were like, you're writing a different kind of book. Wait, you okay, mean, wait, you mean you give up because of the 168 people or just? Yeah, yes. it's just such a huge number. And I know this is the key incident of her book, but I, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a journalist this morning. He said, you know, I'm not sure I've interviewed 168 people in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, guys. I mean, it's, you know, that's the central driving narrative of the book. And if you think about everyone you have to talk to, meaning the people in the courts, anybody who ever saw the thing, anybody in the different families, maybe it was mean of Kate to say 168, (laughs) that maybe what she should have said is like, you know, several dozen or over 100 or over 150. So it's the specificity which kills all her family. I don't think it's mean. (laughs) I just think it's amazing. It's mean to me. I, I can never do that. I mean, but a larger issue is, you know, she takes great pains to say, you know, the first few months, everyone thought it was weird that I was there falling over to the lake. But pretty soon everyone was so busy with their own problems that they just forgot about me. Do you think that's true? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You really think that all the people in Anawadi just got used to? Yes. This is how this narrative reporting happens. Think about what this life is like. First of all, if she spent four years hanging around there. Right. Let's say she was there every day and some nights. That's a huge amount of time or not probably every day, but some number of days. This was her job. Right. She's writing this novel. So her job is to go to the slum, you know, some several days a week. And she must have pared down, you know, 80 percent of the things that she did and talked to, because actually this book has very few people in it. Right. So at some point, say a year in, I mean, come on, Emily, you know this at some point a year. And this is how narrative reporting works. Like a year in, you kind of decide which characters you're going to go for. And then you sort of largely follow them. It's pretty streamlined. I mean, there's just not that many people in the book. Did you ever in reading it feel like, well, how did she know this? How did she know this? I felt that way repeatedly. And it's not because I don't trust her. I do. It's because she's incredibly withholding about her own presence in the book. And this is totally a conscious choice. You know, when you listen to her talk about her method, for example, she gave a great Fresh Air interview when the book came out. She talks about the kind of immersion journalism you are describing, Hannah. And then she says that she doesn't want to be the focus. She doesn't want the blonde white woman in India to be the lens through which you see these people. And I think that's in some ways a success choice. Another friend of mine was saying that she felt like it universalized the themes of the book and made it for her easier to think about the poverty, not just as Indian poverty, but as poverty that could be basically anywhere in the world. But I find as a journalist that I 
want to know, you know, when there's a kid crossing a fetid swamp in the middle of the night with his clothes tied up on his head and you think he might drown, like, are you there? When there's another kid hanging from a ledge off a highway collecting trash who could, like, slip and die, are you there? I need to have be grounded just in that simple, you know, yes, I saw this. No, I didn't actually see this. Oh, I don't at all. And I don't agree that she's not present. She's much more present, for example, than Adrienne Nicola Blanc for many reasons. For one thing, she writes in her own voice. Like she doesn't do the thing that poverty reporters who genuinely disappear try to do, which is write more flatly than they would naturally write. She's very writerly. She's almost poetic in her descriptions. To me, that's the presence of Kate, right? She doesn't have to say – here I am watching the guy in the fence. Like she is very clearly to me constructing profiles and a kind of narrative, which you're which talking is, about her writer presence. You're not talking about her physical presence. And maybe that's enough for you. But that's yeah. different than what I'm talking. about. Yeah, I do not need her to say, like, I was there and I almost helped the kid. and It really freaked me out. I mean, she was there. Part of the trick of writing this book well is like entering the minds of these people. So you're noticing what they're noticing. You're not noticing what you are noticing. That's why it takes four years, because after a while, you have to understand, like, why the gods are important or you know, what is important to Manju, why she's humiliated by her mother's behavior. You have to sort of pretty deeply sink into seeing the world as they see it. And if you're constantly like, holy shit, he's going to fall off the fence, then you really can't do that. That's why, you know, that chapter where they just pass by the guy at the side of the road is so powerful. And that chapter is very meta. Like she's trained herself to understand that it is possible in the moral universe of Anawadi to think that you're rushing to get the bus on time or whatever is more important than this guy screaming at the side of the road. But so was she there? You can't be there all the time unless she moved into the slum, right. which it does not sound like she did. She doesn't say that she did. And so you are liable to miss many things. But I mean, specifically, was she there when the guy was lying there screaming in the road because his leg got run over? I assume that she wasn't Unclear. there for that. It was that a 24 and... hour period. So yeah. we don't know. We don't well, know. I mean, you know this about me. I'm like a dunderheaded literalist in my core. And I wanted a few moments of I was here for this or I wasn't. What if she was there the next day? And this is the chatter and the gossip of the day. And well, so what if she was there that day and she didn't help? Exactly. I mean, this I mean, is I here's, here's my true, but... I have no idea if it's true. Mm-hmm. And, and I right. don't even know that it, I would feel it was really wrong in the long run if she was. But I, I want would. to know. Well, that's a whole other issue. It's the New York Post photographer issue. But so here's sort of the larger question. This is something that Emily and I talked a little bit about last week when we were both in the middle of this book is there are long passages in this book, amazing passages in this book, that if I read them from a writer other than Catherine Boo, I would think, could that be real? Like what? Like I'm looking right now at this passage on page 150, that scene I was talking about before where it's Asha's 40th birthday party and she interrupts the 40th birthday party and she goes for an assignation with a police officer in his van. And the scene follows her out to the hotel and then in the middle of it, she suspected rightly that at home, Manju's tears were falling on a slice of chocolate cake. Okay, so where is Catherine Boo? Is she at home watching the tears falling on the slice of chocolate cake? Is she here watching watching Asha meet up with this guy? Why on earth 
did Asha let her go with her to meet up with this guy? I don't think she did. I think she just recreated that one. I felt but there's, like she must but, have recreated it. But so she sees the van and she sees uh, that's and I guess this is all these things in any other writer. These would all be huge red flags to me of like, what if this is all faked? And it's a testament. And how does to, she know what these people are thinking? Right. Because, because she asked them. Moment. Right. Because no, but what I'm them. saying is. She was there the next morning and she says, so Manju, walk me through this. By that point, she's presumably she's been around them a long time and they're used to her up in their face like this. So Manju, what were you thinking? And then at this moment, and where did you sit when you were crying? And why were you crying? And where was the chocolate cake? And, you know, to the mom, where did you go? And where was like, why is that so hard to but grasp? But Hannah, it's you know hard how hard those moments are. People forget what actually happened in the moment. You think you have the narrative. You're not totally sure. You're going on their recollections. It is not the same as being there. And I I'm not saying that I don't basically trust it, but I just think a little more information about where you're actually situated and how you got the information would only add to this book. Okay, but in the author's note, she writes about the vanishing point of the narrative. In other words, she writes about, you know, how the further she got away from the sequence of events, the more unreliable they would become. So that in most cases, she tried as best she could to get the information as close as possible to the event that happened. Right, from children because she found they were the most trustworthy, they were the least likely to try and And sometimes from children. So I think I don't mind accepting on faith that some of these things are as close approximations as she can get. And I I don't know how you would do it. Like, would you just do a diagram and say, I was there when this happened? I wasn't there when this happened? Like, she said some of these are approximations. But I'm assuming since this was her full-time job that she was there, you know, I don't know, three times a week. I wish I'd listened to the Fresh Air interview or ask Kate herself. Like, if you're a day or two away, that's close enough for me. I guess what I'm most interested in is not whether or not all this stuff is true, because I do believe that all of it is true. I'm most interested in why I believe it's all true. Mm -hmm. What is it about her reporting and writing that makes things she writes so authoritative that from another writer, I think this smells fishy, but from her, I never once in the whole book while I was actually reading it thought, well, what if that's not true? Well, for one thing, she's won every prize in the universe you'd want to win. She has a Pulitzer. She has a MacArthur Genius Grant. And she has won for this book, the National Book Award. For another thing, you've read her work. You know that she has this amazing track record and is incredibly well-respected and clearly is the opposite of someone who cuts corners. I mean, she spends an enormous amount of time. And so it's the time and her history that gives her that credibility. So it's not anything about the writing itself, you don't think? Well, I think Hannah would argue, yes, it is the writing. I mean, to me, because I am a literalist and because I do want to know and I accept the approximation aspect, Hannah, and actually I found it a little bit freeing as a journalist because I tend to be very, very nervous about describing anything I didn't see for myself or getting in people's heads. And maybe the trade-off here is that if you spend a huge amount of time and you really do immersion, then you get to do some of that. But I still wanted to know what was what. Yeah, and I have to say, Kate's not ever done that before. The thoughts part, the new journalism part is something that I do not recall she's ever done in any of her magazines. Right, and I was actually surprised because I I've sort of, as someone who's read and admired enormously her work for a long time, I have always sort of liked that she hadn't done that. And so that departure is something I'd like to understand better. Would they allow that at The New Yorker? Thoughts in people's heads? The very literal-minded, dunderheaded New Yorker fact-checking. She wore a red sari. She was not wearing shoes. I don't know. I don't know. 
That's a good right. Question. I don't know either. But even at the Washington Post or you know any other place that she's written for, it's a new thing, and I suppose she must have at some level made a conscious decision that this was a book and that she was gonna you know that it felt maybe too kind of dunderheaded and literal to her to just describe people's actions and constantly quote them, and that she moved more towards kind of dialogue and thoughts. You know, because her even when she quotes people, they're not exactly quotes, right? They're like. Dialogue is the way that she right. does the quotes. So it is right. in that sense – it feels novelistic when you're reading it. As a reader, I am grateful that that's the choice she made because it makes it an unbelievably rich reading experience. As someone thinking about the book afterwards, it makes me nervous and curious as to how she gets away with it. And I guess as you say, Emily, it makes me wonder, well, could I ever get away with that? Well, and also do we want more people, quote, getting away with it? Like in adopting this technique, inevitably you make it more okay for people who don't have your level of scrupulousness and are not going to spend the same amount of time to also do it too. And that is not such a great development. I'm not blaming Kate for that. You know, it's not really on her, but it is like out there. I wonder if Kate would say that she has increased the possibility of error, right? I mean, it's not Sinatra has a cold, but I think when you start to describe people's thoughts this way, you are more likely to be wrong. Right. You know, like if they read this book, it's much more likely that there are places where Manju might say, that's not what I was thinking of my mom or that's not how I, you know, was thinking of my schoolwork or whatever. It's just more And we likely. haven't heard from the characters in this book, which is not surprising given that they live in an Indian slum, but it's different from, for example, the actors in Slumdog Millionaire. Now, obviously, actors are not the same as real children, but there is this notion that, you know, sometimes Westerners do get it wrong and then we actually hear from the people they're writing about it and they have a different perspective. I'd love to talk a little bit about religion in this book, which I found really interesting and really moving. In fact, particularly the portrayal of Islam among several of the families in the slum. Abdul's family are Muslim. Many of the other families in the slum are Hindu. They're part of the caste that runs much of the government at this time, Shev Sena. And there were tensions between those two groups. But also I was so fascinated by the way the Muslims dealt with each other. Like, for example, the Husseins, even though Fatima is an enormous pain in their ass and is constantly an embarrassment or trouble to them, you know, they invite her over for Eid. And in fact, after she dies, they wash her body, even though the last thing she did before she died potentially sentenced them to ruin. And, you know, there's all these tensions for the women, especially like Zerusina, who grew up in a very devout environment in the country and who comes to the city and has discovered over time that she likes sort of the small measures of freedom that living in squalid poverty give her. Because she has to work to earn money, she gets to work. Because she has to, like, browbeat her husband and children to make things happen, she gets to do those things, which if she lived in her old hometown, she would never get to do because she would be wearing a burger and sitting in the corner. I just thought that was so interesting, but then it turned for me so awfully in what happened to Mina, the character who's the best friend of Asha's daughter, who also comes from a very devout Muslim family. In fact, they seem like the most devout family in this slum and they are going to marry her off to a very devout family out in the sticks and she doesn't want that and she eventually kills herself with rat poison. And it was such an amazing view of the tensions at play just within individual families and between individual families, all ostensibly sharing the same faith, uh, but with real consequences. I thought it was well done because it's probably the way faith is lived, which is less faith 
in a situation like this than tribal loyalty. So it's something that you kind of wear as a part of your identity. But A, it's filtered through an Indian context. So there's lots of talks about gods as well. You know, it's not sort of such a distant god. Mm -hmm. And also the daily living often trumps. Like I think even in Mina's family, you know, one got the sense that the Muslim part was an excuse for a sort of miserable, oppressive father. You know, more than being Muslim, it was just that he was a jerk and beat her a lot. Right. I basically agree. It was like the religious tensions were an overlay of all these different minute social differences among the families. And it was a little bit hard to keep track of exactly which aspect of the tensions were religious and which were these like more mundane fights going on about property or status. Right. And I think that's probably the way it is, right? Religion recedes the same way ethnicity or caste recedes or emerges. You know, people use it for different purposes. Like if there's a moment when they need to emphasize the difference, then they use it. But if there's a moment where, you know, say two girls just want to be friends or go to a party together, then the differences kind of recede. So you can call on it whenever you need it. Like a father can say, we are Muslim. You know, we don't sit on the stoop or we don't go send our kids to school. But it's more an excuse than it is an actual live identity. Right. Like it's surmountable and then it's also available to be a wedge, right? Which yeah. in some ways made me reflect on what I think of as like 19th and early 20th century European history where, you know, Jews were living in ghettos, for example, to use my own family or tribe. As an, You think of them as being very divided and yet you know from reading history or reading fiction about that period that people are also – interacting very normally in all these everyday ways. Was there ever a moment in the book where someone's religion, whether they were Muslim or Hindu, was a comfort to them? Or aided them in some way? Yeah. The one moment I can think of was the Hindus when they talk about the gods. Like there's a moment of great earnestness and you can see that, you know, the way that some boys might use sports for bonding, these boys would use the gods. So Mm -hmm. that's like a moment of intimacy among young men is when you talk about who your god is that you've chosen and the story of your god that moves you. And one way of choosing a mentor or bringing somebody along with you in the sort of scavenging world is by kind of bonding over the gods. That was a very sweet moment. It sort of reminded me of how sometimes people who are Catholic talk about their patron saint, right? Right. It's a shared thing. Right. I actually have a question about the hopelessness, which I think about a lot. I know that's how you started this, Dan. But philosophically, often poverty books are like this. Often people who study inequality end up at a place in their careers where they think inequality is endemic and you can never get out of it. I'm just wondering if that's the message one takes, like that, you know, when you write a narrative and nobody's able to ever get out of it is, I don't know, is that... Are you asking whether then people come away with this feeling of futility? Yeah, it's like Marxism without the solution, kind of like there are just built in inequalities in society. You know, I wonder if Kate actually thinks that. I mean, she seems to be a hopeful person, you know, and she finds kind of humor and pleasure and affection in all the poor communities that she goes in. But never exactly. Hope is always largely false. You know, I don't find it depressing exactly. I'm just, you know, wondering philosophically if that's the point. Right. Like if you were a poor person in a Mumbai slum who read this book, would your takeaway be, well, great? Right. I'm right. fucked. <laughs> right. Exactly. That's just it for me. I will be forever steamrolled. I'm right. stuck behind the beautiful forevers. Like there's no beautiful forever for me, you know? It's not holding up a very hopeful mirror. 
at all to the people who live in this book. On the other hand, there is always room for the idea of an individual to escape, even though we don't see that happen. Or am I just being a little Pollyannish now? This book does not give me any sense that an individual <laughs> could ever escape. Well, what about Manju? In theory. What about Manju? I was thinking of a girl who was a Dan fan. already knocked down Manju. No. She's still in school, even though she doesn't like it or get anything out of it. And so it's theoretically possible that she could one day do something else. But I worry for her, and that this is, you know, one of the many cases in which I would love to hear from Catherine Boo what is up with these characters now. But like that's a case it seems like she's so wrapped up in her mother and her mother is so wrapped up in her that it would be impossible to escape from her mother's schemes and plans, which don't necessarily involve Manju having an independent life of her own. Right. Right. I mean, the other thing is the person who really tugged at my heartstrings for taking a tumble in this book was Zaranisa, the mother Mm -hmm. of Abdul, because she seems like she's not as corrupt and not as despicable, frankly, as Asha in her striving. And so you root for her quite strongly. And then this whole criminal justice system, you know, trumped up charges just essentially sends her family so far backward. It's really hard to take. Moving away a little bit from the questions of inequality and things like that as a reading experience. I mean, I worry that you could listen to our whole conversation. And if you hadn't read the book, be like, Jesus Christ, I would rather slit my wrist (laughs) than read this book. And I mean, that's like... That's an extremely facile way to deal with a response to this. But I know that my response as a consumer to a story like this is often going to be, well, what is it that is the attraction of a story like this? Is it simply that in reading it, you learn about something that you should have known about anyway, but that because of whatever cloistered life I'm living, I don't? Is it that the storytelling is so beautiful that it in and of itself ennobles these lives in some way? Like what? Is it? Well, first, I'm going to read you this David Sedaris blurb, which I thought was so condescending when I saw it on the back of the book. It might surprise you how completely enjoyable this book is, as richly and beautiful written as a novel. But I think that probably captures the way a lot of people feel. For one thing, I mean, would you read this book if it were a novel? You probably would read this book if it were a novel because we would have an expectation of sort of pleasurable, beautiful writing. Depends if you have a taste for Rowanton Mystery right, and right. the other Indian writers who right. have written so incredibly well but incredibly bleakly about Indian poverty. I do not find the minute-to-minute reading of this book bleak. I really don't. It just doesn't have bleakness. To me, really, the bleak moments just creep upon you as a surprise. You know? Yeah, I didn't find it bleak either on a minute-to-minute basis. But it's, it's almost like opening. It's like, you know, think of it like Jacques Cousteau since you started with your undersea <laughs> analogy. It's like it opens up a world to you that is largely invisible and that That's just a beautiful thing. I think you're right, Hannah. I think there's more, though. And now I'm going to steal a line or two from David Plotz, your husband. When we were talking on the Gap Fest last week about the New York Post photograph of this man who's about to be um, killed in this horrible subway accident, David was saying that what saves that photo for him is the sense of empathy that you're forced into having. And he was pointing out that there are not that many moments in life where you truly feel this huge swell of fellow emotion for someone who you don't know, for someone who you're learning about through the medium of photography or literature, and in this case, nonfiction literature. I mean, that's a hugely special thing, and I don't think we know what the impact of that is. Maybe I'm saying that because as a fellow, if lesser journalist, I want to believe that people are changed in some way by these books and that that helps the human race in some manner, even if it's indirect. But I almost feel like it's the 
feeling itself. It's the degree to which you become not just like discovering this world, but also a part of it and submerged and it's in your head while the book is in your hands. Maybe that's where the hope comes from. So it's not so much about anything changing, but just about the connection having been made. And you're right. What the outcome of that is or what actually follows from that is hard to say, but it is something. Yes. It's funny that you mentioned that blurb from David Sedaris on the back of the book because I have this vision of the people at Random House getting that blurb and just giving each other high fives everywhere. (laughs) Yes, we can put something on this book that says it's enjoyable because you're right that the minute-to-minute experience of reading this is not depressing at all. But the overwhelming feeling I have at the end of this book is not only one of marveling at her accomplishment but also of feeling like, well, shit, what the hell – could I do about this? And I like this notion, which I hope is true, that books like this, even if they do not directly change the circumstances of the individuals within them, do contribute to a greater good and morality for the world at large. I mean, I had the same experience reading Adrian Nicola Blanc's book, which right. is longer and takes place over a longer period of time, Random Family, which is that the minute to minute reading of the book was like watching a soap opera, frankly. Right. Like, that's what kept me reading that book. It's no, just like, a really good narrative serial drama. Yeah. Okay, a good narrative serial <laughs> drama. Thank you. And it's it like was an only AMC show, yeah. Yeah, HBO, HBO or AMC. <laughs> so it's only when I was done that I realized how depressing the message of the book was. Well, um, I want to thank both of you for sitting down and talking about this book. Obviously, I think the answer to the question is we all recommend yes. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah, for yes. sure. Well, thank you very much, Hannah. Thank you, Emily. Sure. Thank you. A program note: Our next audio book club selection is Arcadia. Lauren Groff's novel about a commune in upstate New York in the 1970s. Please check it out and then join us for our discussion on February 1st. The homepage for the Slate Book Review is slate.com slash books. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the Audiobook Club at slate.com slash ABC. Please visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash slateABC. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. Search for Slate Audio Book Club in the iTunes store, and don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Our producer is Abdul Rufus. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Hannah Rosen and Emily Bazelon, I'm Dan Coyce. Thanks for listening. <laughs>